Our state-by-state -state look at coronavirus trends is more encouraging this Sunday. Welcome to the Alt-Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. The wildfires that have devastated parts of Australia. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future at the intersection of self, community, and planet. We live in uncertain times, a powerful moment of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Welcome to The Alt Normal. My name is Tiffany Wen and I'm the host of this show. I'm super excited to be having this conversation today with Robin Lim, who I will be introducing in a moment. Um, but first, just to start us off, if you guys are new to the show, thank you so much for tuning in. If you are coming back for a second, third, or fourth time, um, really appreciate your support. Our intention is to really spread and amplify these stories of people living in Bali um, doing amazing work in activism. So any support, um, ratings or reviews that you can give will really, really help us. So thank you. So why are we here and what is the Alt Normal? So the Alt Normal is a show that centers diversity as a beautiful and absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world. It really began with the question, how might we reframe this new normal that was handed to us as crisis and create an alt normal or alternative reality that we remake together in our diversity, in our gifts for a more resilient and healthier culture. So this needs no explaining, but in this grave crisis of systems collapse, racial injustice and global economic disaster, lies an opportunity for a massive paradigm shift in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and planet Earth. Really, the old systems and ways of doing things are dying out and something new is emerging. We really need that new story for humanity that you know includes these diverse voices and identities, leaning more into the complexity of who we are not simply leaning into what's just normal or comfortable. So this show allows us to get a front row seat into the change makers, activists, bridge builders, and conscious entrepreneurs that are part of creating this new story and building new solutions. So just wanna take a moment to just thank Zest, a plant-based restaurant here in Ubu, Bali that um, is hosting this conversation today. And Zest has a mission powered by plants made for people. So not only do they make beautiful and delicious creative vegan food, but they also really believe in the power of community and bringing the depth of conversation that we're having today. So really grateful to Zest. And also just a quick shout out to um, the creative agency that I helped co-found called Resonance. And we specialize in the design of a brand's highest intelligence, really led by a mission to humanize brand stories, create compelling content ecosystems that deliver long-lasting impact and growing audiences authentically in the world. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Robin Lim. And who is Robin Lim? So Ibu Robin Lim is a Filipino-American midwife, mother, grandmother, and founder of 
Yayasan Bumi Sehat, a nonprofit in Indonesia. Robin also serves on the board of Bumi Wada, Philippines, where she is known as Lola Robin. Her passion is human rights and childbirth. She believes that each individual is an essential piece of peace. Therefore, by protecting the mothers in childbirth and the newborns, our smallest citizens of Earth, we may build peace one baby, one mother, one family at a time. Bumi Sehat has four community health, education, and childbirth centers within Indonesia and one in the Philippines, as well as mobile disaster relief birth and health services. Across all clinics, Bumi offers a comprehensive range of allopathic and holistic medical care, including pre and postnatal care, breastfeeding support, infant, child, and family health services, nutritional education, prenatal yoga, and gentle, loving, natural birth services. Each baby's capacity to love and trust is built at birth and in the first two hours of life. Robin has also appeared on a TED Talk in Ubud and was celebrated as CNN Hero of the Year in 2011. So I'd love to welcome Robin to the show. Thank you so much, Robin, for coming on the show today. Selamat pagi. Thank you. And um, just to sort of set the stage, you know, this conversation is going to center on really what it's like to run um, an NGO, especially during COVID, and how despite all the odds against what's been thrown at us, Bumi Sehat is still at the front lines of fighting for a woman's right to bring a baby into the world gently and without trauma, um, and borrowing some words that you said, protecting the most natural thing a woman can do while advocating for optimal humanity, health, intelligence, and consciousness. So I just love to start off, Robin, um, with just the very basic premise of what a gentle birth actually looks like. And this is a question for those of us who um, have not yet become a mother, maybe aren't even thinking about that right now, or maybe had a birth, but didn't do it in the presence of a midwife. Mm -hmm. So just to give us a little bit of flavor and color, what does it mean to bring a baby into the world <laughs> gently and without trauma? Thank you. That's a beautiful question. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that many of the mothers listening and families listening may have had a, what I call a belly birth, which is a cesarean. And I just want them not to feel bad, not to feel guilty. They've, you know, had to heal from major abdominal surgery, but I, I guess I want to say thank you, because for whatever reason, uh, whatever unfolded in the process of them bringing a baby Earthside, it became the their birth story that they would have a belly birth. And I feel like so many mothers go around feeling wounded by that experience. And it's time for us to say, hey, you did a heroic thing. You went to the furthest reaches of science and had major abdominal surgery to bring your baby Earthside. And thank you. So that being said, natural, gentle, respectful childbirth means that the healthcare providers, the midwives, the nurses, the doctors, uh, absolutely respect the mother's wishes. They honor her as a sovereign over her own body, which is a big question that's up politically right now, whether women have sovereignty over their bodies. Women in Poland have gone to the streets by the millions over this issue. Uh, sadly, protocols, medical protocols that 
did not consider women as full human beings with their own sovereignty got exported all over the world from the United States. And so it's been a walking back to, for example, my grandmother, my Lola, was a helot in the Philippines. Um, she was a helot during World War II and before World War II. That she was a helot at a time when there were no hospitals. So the buck stopped there with the traditional uh, healer. She was a healer and a baby catcher. Uh, and so she couldn't just take someone to the hospital when there was a complication. So she had to take care of her pregnant women as best she could when sometimes you would have to feed 30 refugees with one sweet potato. So you had to be really creative and you had to look to the plants and, and find ways. And she really put that into me, into my soul and into my heart and into my mind um, and into my body. She used to massage me when I was little in the Philippines to, they say that, they say that um, someone like that, a powerful healer, can put an anting anting, which is a little, there's no English word for it. It's like an amulet, but it's a secret amulet that they put under your skin. And it's an irritation that's meant to force you to always work very hard for humanity and work very diligently. And they say she put an anting anting. You know, it could be a little piece of shell or a little stone. But they say she put it in my heart. So... Since I was a little kid, I've always been um, a defender of human rights and, you know, picking herbs and cooking them and, you know, looking for recipes when there was no online, of course, and, um, you know, the late 50s and early 60s, and then pressing flowers and herbs to try to find out the medicinal and the food value of all these plant allies. So that was, you know, where I was at, and that evolved into eventually being a birth keeper. And um, I had a child when I was a teenager, so I started out really young um, with this incredible guru that was, you know, came out of my body and was put skin to skin with me. So to answer the question, what is gentle childbirth? It's respectful. It's honoring who we are in our bones and our blood. Because one of the things that happens when you're giving birth is the more you're in your frontal lobe, that part of your mind that is forming language and ideas and, and opinions and all of those things, the longer it's going to take because childbirth will take you down to the last brick to your absolute most authentic self, um, your indigenous self. And people, you know, people might look at someone with blonde hair and blue eyes and say they're not indigenous, but in their bones going back, go back, 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 back to their ancestry. Yeah, they were hunters and gatherers and foragers and they lived in whatever shelter caves or whatever shelter in Asia we made bamboo shelters we made what we could and they gave birth on the mother earth they gave birth squatting on our mother earth and our mother earth will bring that baby right down I mean when we have a mom whose labor is just taking really long and sometimes the midwives at Bumisat call me and they say can you come and talk to this mother her birth is taking so long she's really in her head and one thing we'll do is take off her bra because if it's tight up here, it's tight down there. And then we'll make sure that she gets out on the Earth Mother. If you look at Bumiseha, the birth rooms have big glass doors that open to the back and the garden. So women, without having to deal with anybody that they don't know, they can go out the back door and they can get their feet on the Earth Mother. And you would be surprised how quickly she brings that baby right down to herself. And then the baby... We, we call it a pregnant pause. Instead of just throwing the mother up on the baby up on the mother, like a big giant fish that just kind of wet fish that hits you and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what that is. Um, we 
hold the baby right there. The midwives that bring me say hi will hold the baby right there. And the mother will reach for her and bring that baby to her heart. That empowering moment that's called, in the Philippines, we call it Unang Yakap, Pulut Pertama, the first embrace. And that is our job to protect the first embrace. So in that journey, it means that when the mom is pushing her baby out, we're not yelling at her to push. We're not talking about whatever our little cares of the day are, or we're singing Gayatri Mantra. If she if she's Hindu, if she's Christian, so we'll sing Om Burbwa Swaha while the baby's crowning, so that the baby knows that they are a sacred soul and that we're acknowledging them as the miracle. And the family sings with us. And then, of course, for the Muslim families, we say Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim, Allah Akbar. And the Christian families, we sing Amazing Grace. Uh, the midwives at Bumi Sehat, none of them are actually, well, one of them is, but most of them are not Christian. So they know one Christian song, which is why we have so many baby girls named Grace. <laughs> um, but the families get so happy when the baby's crowning, and instead of being worried, instead of giving them fear, we're giving them this song. And then they'll tell us later, they'll say, wow, you know, when my baby cries and everything's fine, but the baby's just crying, I just sing the Gayatri Mantra or I sing my baby's birth song. And the baby immediately is settled and looks in my eyes and really feels resonant with that song. So and it's been hundreds of times we've been told uh, this story that, that the babies resonate with their birth song. And right now I would say Bumi Sehat's responsible for almost 20,000 births of brand new human beings on the planet over the last how many years? Um, we built our first clinic in 2004 um, and it has the rest is history. Wow. That was a very vivid and beautiful picture. The, the first embrace and empowering mm -hmm the new mom, the new mother, to receive her own creation. Mm -hmm. and Midwives don't deliver babies. Mothers deliver. We receive and we, we help support the mother. Yeah. Remember, support is an uplifting. You know, when you really support someone, you're underneath them. You're not lording over them. You're not pushing them down. You're lifting them up. And that is our job in prenatal care. There's so much prenatal scare out there where the mothers go to for a checkup and they end up in tears because they've been told, well, you wear glasses, you need a cesarean or some crazy thing that is absolutely not the truth. And when they are with the midwives at Bumi Sehat, they leave with a smile on their face. They leave with some more knowledge about nutrition. They leave with a confidence in their own inner knowing mm -hmm. because to awaken a person's inner knowing, that's really care. Uh, to make them think that you know more than them or you're bigger or better than them or smarter or in any way is not prenatal care. That's prenatal scare. Wow. We're going to definitely unpack all of these. I want to just um, also uh, highlight the part in the bio where we mentioned each baby's capacity to love and trust is built at birth and in the first two hours of life. So kind of building on that beautiful image that you just shared with us. Mm -hmm. What does the first two hours of life look like? <laughs> Can you shed some light on that? Well, it's, it's the mom and the baby skin to skin. And skin to skin is so important. Because remember, the mom's body if, will heat up if the baby's body is a little cold. And this goes on for, for weeks and weeks. If the baby's too warm, the mom's body will cool down. 
the mother is universe. So the baby's been in her belly, right under her heart, listening to her heartbeat. You know, that's been the baby's dance. And, and when the mother goes out in the sun, hopefully we're asking our mothers to make sure their clothing is thin or that they open and let their belly be in the sun because that's the Hiranyagarbha. That's the golden egg. That's when the, ba- the sun shining through the mother's belly is like, for the baby, it's like being inside a cantaloupe, you know, that color and that amazing golden egg consciousness. And we, wanna, we want the babies to have that as their norm. And then when the mother's sad, the baby feels sad. So the hormone cortisol, which is the hormone of stress, strife, sadness, that actually affects the baby so profoundly that it can slow down brain development. So we say to the, we say to the mother's partner, and not all families have a mother and a father, you know. Some families are just single moms, and some families have two moms. We have all kinds of, of configurations. And Bumi Sehat being super open-hearted, uh, everyone feels welcome there. But we always say to the mother's partner, it's your job, if you want a really smart child, to make her happy. You know, because we want her hormones of stress to be minimized, which is why it's so important in this time of COVID that we really uplift the mothers, that we really empower them to find their own inner knowing, and we support that. So it just looks like a mother with a baby skin to skin. Often the partner will be there. Uh, I know that in many hospitals in the United States, they will only allow the mother one partner. And if they have any COVID patients, which most do right now, they will not even allow the mother to bring a partner in. So that's really traumatic for the mother not to have a partner. And the protocol in most medical facilities, the what I call colonized medicine, is to clamp and cut the, the umbilical cord immediately and take the baby to the nursery. And then when the mother gets her baby, they might, they might give the baby a minute of first embrace, but then they'll take the baby right away. This is just a cruel, horrible infraction of the baby's human rights. Babies don't say, oh, I'm in the nursery now and I'm in this plastic box and there's bright lights on me and there's loud noises. And But sooner or later, I'm going to go back to my mom. Babies don't feel that. Babies have no concept of time. They've been in a, in a, in a space out of time. And so they just go into despair. They can't think, well, later on, I'll get my universe back. Mother is the universe. And if you separate them, baby goes into despair. And it is at the time of birth and the first hour or two of life that you're developing your capacity to love and trust. So if you're separated from your mother, you're going to have to spend 30, 40 years doing your down dog and meditating and praying and getting your feet on the mother earth to try to heal your birth trauma. You know, why not have people in their optimal, authentic selves without trauma from the get-go? And that's how I believe we build peace. I don't believe that a child who's respected and honored and loved and goes skin to skin with mother and is born without trauma and then fed at the breast, I don't believe that child is going to grow up and pump fossil fuel emissions into the environment. I believe that the children that are born with love and trust intact are going to protect their earth mother. Because remember, your relationship with your birth mother, your universe, is going to trickle down and become your relationship with your mother earth, who is your mother whose body you grew inside of, your stargate to earth. You came through her. Your relationship and love for her and respect for her is going to translate into your relationship and love and respect for your earth mother. 
So how do we save the planet at this time when we're facing an extinction level abuse of our own home? Now, no other species has done this to their home, but no other species has interfered so profoundly with the mother-baby connection at birth, except for humans. Yeah, this is the first time I'm learning about this, and I have many, many questions. Maybe I'll ask one more just because I'm, maybe we won't get to the root cause of this in this conversation, but just the knowledge that the first two hours are absolutely critical and non-negotiable for the optimal health and happiness of a future human. Is that because Western doctors or these you know, professionals who are giving birth are not educated about this? Or where does that knowledge go astray? Mm. And why is that not happening or at least being talked about? Do you have an answer to it's that? A, it's a really good question. And it, this is a sacred time, the sacred mother-baby connection. And it's not only for the health, happiness, well-being, capacity to love and trust for individuals, but individuals make up societies. And societies either create war or they build peace. So it is essential for our relationship with the Mother Earth. It's our relationship with each other as different tribes. To find that unity, you have to have that unity throughout pregnancy, hopefully, Hopefully you feel cherished and loved and wanted, and hopefully you get that first embrace protected and that you never experience trauma. And and the question is being asked. Um, A beautiful revolution is taking place. And when I say revolution, I mean the word revolution with a small r and a big e. So it's a a revolution. It's evolution. And that has what's happened in the last few months as of June of 2020, it's interesting because 2020 is clear vision, um, and we're being forced to open our eyes and see many things, some of them we don't want to look at. But one of the beautiful things that happened in June 2020 is that um, FIGO, Federation International Gynecologists and Obstetricians, after decades of women like myself, women like Deborah Pascali Bonaro, Mary Kroger, Ina Mae Gaskin, um, I would say Samsara Morgan, uh, Claudia Booker, whose birthday is actually today in the U.S., beautiful midwives from all over, Nicole Gonzalez, who's Native American. Um, Midwives have worked, and I'm sorry, I'm naming so few of the real trailblazers. I mean, I can't, Deborah Flowers, all the farm midwives. We have worked, we've written, we've researched, we've gathered the data, we've presented the data, we've worked tirelessly to prove that what our grandmothers and great-grandmothers did and our great-great-grandmothers did was actually optimal and that there was a divine plan. And the divine plan was that human beings like all mammals really can do their childbirth beautifully and they know how and they can be trusted. And when they need help, bless the, the interventions that we have. Better living through science when we need it. But science should be put on the back burner and, and that that bag of tricks should only be open when absolutely necessary. But what happened was, is that FIGO Federation International Gynecologists and Obstetricians started to look at why their patients don't like them after the birth and why midwives are loved and cherished by the families after the births. And the midwives said, well, we don't think of them as patients because they're not sick. A woman in the prime of her life having a baby is not a sick person. 
She should be supported and upheld and uplifted as a healthy, a healthy mammal doing the most natural, wonderful thing. But what happened? What happened and what started to make childbirth dangerous? We can look at Bali historically because we're here in Bali. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that in the 1970s, first of all, in 1963, Gurung Agung had major catastrophic eruptions. And aside from the almost 2,000 people that were killed on on the mountain, somewhere around 50 to 100,000 people or more historically and we don't know the exact numbers, but historians say no less than 50,000 people starved to death. Because imagine all the rice crops failed, everything in the ways of food failed. People would do anything to get a coconut and to grate it, and sometimes they'd mix it with ash and feed it and a little salt and feed it to their children and tell them it was rice. People were starving in Bali. People were absolutely starving. And so the NGOs came in. And you know that story where the really Western-educated monkey decides to come in and help a fish by putting the fish up in a tree and saying, you'll be safe up here with me? You know, those kinds of things, like what works for Balinese people in the context of their island and their indigenous creative selves, what worked for indigenous peoples does not work for modern westernized people and they came in with a new rice and that high yield rice you could grow three crops a year you had to spray it with fungicides and pesticides and herbicides and fertilize because it wasn't the indigenous red rice of bali you know it wasn't protected by the earth mother herself and the seasons of growing rice remember dovetail with the hindu calendar so growing rice and sharing water from the top of the mountain down to the rice fields near the, near the shore, that's a sacred, sacred system. Mm-hmm. And even the Bali calendar has been, I would say, bastardized because suddenly they added a third crop of rice because they said this high yield rice that grows very quickly is going gonna, is gonna to end hunger all over Asia. And guess what it did? It created a rice that Even when they stored it in their rice barns, if they had it in a cardboard box, the rats would eat the cardboard before they ate the rice. Okay, The nutritional value of white green revolution rice is so poor that women began to bleed to death in childbirth by the first or second season of this rice. And people didn't know, you know, the Balinese elders that I talked to 30 years ago when I first came to the island would say to me, well, Ibu Robin, we don't know why women started to bleed to death, but it was, a, it was an epidemic. Every family lost women. And we think it was because when the rice cooks, there's an aroma that really lifts our spirits. We think that the new rice cooking, it didn't have an aroma like that. And so we became depressed as a people. But it even was further, it was the nutritional value of the white rice that is served in every warang now that is, you know, there are thousands of children, according to Vandana Chishiva, in India, starving to death with bellies full of white rice. Yeah. And so we had women who were eating for their staple food because the Western rescuers came in and they said, let us help you. And then when they would, they would get the fertilizer, the fungicide, the pesticide, the white stuff that they're spreading on, sure. the, on the rice fields, the stuff they're spraying on the rice fields, 
that was at first given to them and now they have to buy it, right? But they're getting three crops a year. Isn't it wonderful? It's fast growing rice. But again, it's, it's filling your belly, but it's not nourishing your cells. And so the women began to bleed to death, literally to death. And if I talked to many of the midwives, the, the, the Dukenbayi that were still alive when I first came to the island, and they talked about how suddenly the women just didn't give birth and hold their baby, and then the placenta came and everybody was fine. They talked about how it became very dangerous to have a baby. And so, of course, there had to be hospitals. And then, in, for example, in Ubud, there was no transportation to the hospital. So, you know, a beautiful thing happened is that the big NGOs came in and then they trained the they trained women all over Indonesia to be midwives. Unfortunately, they didn't train them to be midwives in a very practical way. And so these midwives had certain really important skills, life-saving skills, and they also were lacking in other skills. And so as the generations went on, the first generation, the first 60,000 midwives, they still had all that love and kindness from the traditional birth attendants. They still had all the knowledge of their mothers and grandmothers. But as time went on, they became more and more colonized and more and more mechanized. And so you hear stories all over the world, all over the Philippines. I've heard it in Nepal. I've heard it in Haiti. I've heard it in Indonesia. Where else have I heard it? I've, I've heard it just everywhere, Bangladesh. I've heard women look at me and say, I was slapped when I was in labor. When I cried, they punched me. They yelled at me. Why did they yell at me? You know, but that is changing. So let's go back to what happened with Federation International Gynecologists and Obstetricians. When they discovered that women have been walking back that cruelty that the medical protocols brought with it, and women have been walking that back and going back to their grandmother's way and their great-great-grandmother's way, and they've been practicing with kindness and love. Because, you know, if you add kindness and love to anything, if you pray over the herb that you're going to drink in your tea, it's going to make you well. It's going to nourish your tissues. So women have always known that. Our grandmothers, my grandmother knew it. My great-great-grandmother was also um, a midwife. Um, and then the obstetricians and gynecologists ask that question, why don't our mothers, why don't our patients love us? And we say, well, we don't call them patients. We call them the mothers we, we are honored to look after. And so they looked at their vision and mission statement. And they said, our vision and mission statement sucks. And we said, we agree. <laughs> Deborah Pascali Bonaro and um, what's called uh, the International Mother Baby Initiative um, worked very closely with FIGO. And what they did was is they rewrote, we had 10 beautiful steps for respectful, loving, skilled, kind, gentle, natural childbirth. And we shared those 10 steps with them and we added two steps. Um, and so there's 12 steps now. It's called the International Childbirth Initiative. Please, if you're going to have a baby, Google it because you have your human rights right there spelled out for you in 12 easy steps. And Federation International Gynecologists and Obstetricians have ratified that as their new vision and mission statement. Wow. It's exciting. It means that all that research and all that struggling and all that, we don't have to fight anymore. We're done with fighting. That's not the woman's way to fight and go to war. The woman's way is, is to use our one weapon, which is love. So now in the most loving way, we can say, hey, here's an international childbirth initiative. Any OBGYN in Bali, and many have already come and gotten it, can get a printed copy of it in Bahasa, Indonesia. 
Our organization has translated it into Tagalog. Another organization has translated it into Ware Ware. Um, so, and all over the world, it's in Spanish, it's in French, it's in Dutch. It's, you know, we're putting it in as many languages as possible and making it available for free online mm -hmm. so that the human rights of mothers, babies, and families can be protected, you know, by this one simple vision statement. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a big deal. And mothers who are going to OBGYNs, I mean, you know, some mothers feel safer going to the doctor and having their birth in a hospital. And a woman should be able to choose to find her safe place. Um, but she can always print that and she can always say to her doctor, hey, read this. Or she can she can send it to him by, by PDF mm -hmm. and say, read this because these are my human rights. I mean, that's true empowerment, really trying to empower the, the mother, the woman to just make the best decision for her. But just giving her the opportunity to know what her legal human rights are. Or not even legal, just human rights, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, you covered a lot of ground there and it seems like your passion for really building the mother up and the baby up and the world up from the mother, you know, inside out, um, has spread across the world, um, because you have this network of people that, you know, all support each other in being able to bring more quality to childbirth. And now I'd like to kind of shift more into Bumi Sehat and sort of mm -hmm. what you've created since you said you set up your first clinic in the 2000s, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so um, let's just start with before Bumi Sehat came into the picture. And you did touch on this, but you moved to Bali and this is where you created your first clinic. And I just want to know, before Bumi came into the picture, how were women really navigating the prenatal birth and postpartum process mm. like what did that picture look like just to understand you know what you came in to really bring into being as a result of the problem that you mm -hmm. saw firsthand so 29 years ago when I came here 20 almost 29 years ago now um, I arrived in Bali and I got pregnant and uh, it was my fifth baby I had had home births with beautiful midwives in California and then in Hawaii where I lived for 13 years and I was far from my people. Uh, I mean, I had I was making beautiful friends here, but I was far from the from the women that supported me in childbirth. And I believe all women deserve a circle of support. So it's it always breaks my heart when a mother will say a mother to be will say, "Well, I just want to go out in the jungle by myself and resonate with my body and just have my baby all by myself." You know what? You deserve a circle of support, and you have to unpack what it is in your life that caused you to have so many trust issues that you would go out and be all alone for this major, major doorway, this major doorway and transition of change that you're going to go through. I mean, having a baby is, is freaking intense. I mean, I, I think there's a, big, there's a big difference between pain and suffering. And it hurts like hell. But if you have someone rubbing your back, you're not suffering anymore. You know, that woman that's rubbing your back, that midwife or doula, she can't take your pain away, but she can certainly reduce it. She can certainly give you that love, the oxytocin, the hormones, the endorphins that help you to cope and help you to go, wow, this is not so bad. I got this. You know, I've got this. Mm -hmm. And every woman deserves that. So 
we're going to have to get back to that where every woman feels safe. And you have to ask that question again. <laughs> no, I mean, I went on a tangent. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's just you have such a such a strong philosophy, and I just wanted to understand before you created Boomi Say Hi, mm. what did the world of prenatal birth and postpartum care? I mean, just the whole experience of becoming a mother. What did that actually look like that you felt in your depths? I must create something mm -hmm. so that this other thing can no longer cease to exist <laughs> or ideally, right? right? So um, let's go back to why I became a midwife. Sure. Um, I was in the process of becoming a midwife because I was, um, I was a school teacher. I was a poet in the schools in Maui County. Um, I was living on a farm. I was growing all of our own food. I mean, we bought a little bit of brown rice, but, you know, we were milking goats and making yogurt and cheese and and paneer and the children were were totally on the farm creating that and giving away lots of truckloads of food every week and it was a really beautiful existence um and then somehow i was fate brought me here and um when when we got here i was offered a job as a teacher so we stayed for a year and i got pregnant right away it's like bali just brought our son and so hanuman was born and in the process of having Hanuman, I was trying to meet and get to know midwives. And I met and got to know some pretty amazing women out there. And they shared with me what was going on for them and how difficult it was to get supplies like gloves and syringes because people were, were using needles. And, and, and they really invited me in to be there at birth. And they actually invited me in to see what was going on at the hospital because the doctors asked me to come and help. And so I got to be at the hospital a lot. And I got to see that it doesn't matter what happened before and how traumatic it or how maybe absent. You know, a woman, the midwives told me the other day, a beautiful woman came in who had no prenatal visits at all anywhere, no prenatal care. And she had her baby at Bumi Sehat. And they did a beautiful job for her. When I saw her later, she was telling me how the midwives were so kind and loving and how... And the midwife said, yeah, she bled a lot because she didn't have good nutrition. And she basically ate white rice and Indomie for every day for her meals. But she was okay, you know. They, they have the tools and the skills and the, and, you know, the oxytocin, um, you know, injections that they need to stop a, a hemorrhage. And they, were, and they kept her baby with her because the oxytocin of loving your baby also keeps you from hemorrhaging. The minute that your baby's separated from you, your chances of bleeding out are much elevated. So all of that was going on and I was, I was pregnant and I got to know some amazing women and, you know, Hanuman was born in our little village and the people were really excited. You know, here's, here's a foreigner. I mean, I'm an Asian American, but I'm definitely a foreigner. No matter how long you live here, you get to stay a foreigner. Um, and, um, and they were excited and they were excited that I was so pro breastfeeding because Nestle and Carnation, who have merged, and these other companies that sell infant formula that are all subsidiaries of the big monsters, uh, they had went village to village, and they gave women nurses costumes, and they went in and said, if you love your baby, you'll, you'll give them this instead of your breasts. And they went to the hospitals, and the hospitals get money to take the baby away. See, taking baby and mother away is about profit. 
You take baby and mother away, you separate them, you take the baby to the baby room, and you give them a bottle of infant formula. And that infant formula then becomes normal for the baby. And it's much more difficult to initiate breastfeeding because the mother hasn't had first embrace, the baby hasn't bonded properly, and then the baby has nipple confusion. So giving infant formula to newborn babies is sabotage. And then the, and then the families went home. And the families went home and there would be no infant formula sometimes in the warongs in their little villages. And then the water and sanitation issues. And then if you look at the research, you see that a baby in Indonesia or the Philippines that's being fed infant formula is 300 times more likely to die in the first year of life. So you can say, I can safely say, and I'll say it and go on record and they can come after me if they want, that Nestle and the infant formula companies are murdering newborn babies. They are murdering newborn babies, okay? I have the guts to say it because I've seen it. I've seen the families come to me and say, our baby died. I'm like, what? Well, we live over in Karangasam, and then we had the baby in this hospital, and then they gave the baby infant formula, and then they told me I didn't have milk, and they didn't support the mother. You know, to say that the mother doesn't have enough milk is just, it's just not true. You know, a baby's stomach when they're born is the size of a lentil, you know? And colostrum comes in in the first three days postpartum in little bits, just the perfect formula coming from the mother's body, from her breast, delivered at the perfect temperature, absolutely clean without any need for sterilization or boiling water or bottles or nipples or all of those things that families can't do. And then it gets delivered to the baby right there. And then the amount increases as the baby's belly grows. And so, you know, by the third day, the mother has a flood of milk and the babies got, have this instinct to go to the breast. That's why we do skin to skin. They go straight to the breast and they start breastfeeding. If you don't interfere with the birth process, if you don't get the mother in her mind asking her foolish questions, you know, at the time that she should just be in quiet, loving space, bonding with her baby and her family should be there if they're supportive of her. And so I was here and I was doing that. Prior to me coming to Bali, my sister died from a complication of her third pregnancy. She was actually in Alabama. Um, she's married to a Korean man and her being half Asian and married to a Korean man, they were treated very badly. And she was having problems in her pregnancy, hypertension problems. And the doctor said he didn't have time and he would address the issue in a couple of weeks. And she had a massive uh, stroke event that killed her that night. So she had just seen her doctor. And my, my I don't know, I always dream of her that she was a, she was a girl. My, my sister had two sons already. Uh, they were left without a mother. Um, I, my sister and the baby she was carrying, my niece, were just gone from the world. And I had to look at that really carefully. And I grew up sleeping in the same bed as my sister. You know, we had beds, but my mother would constantly try to decorate our room and make it really pretty and put our beds on opposite sides of the little room. We would push them together and we would even take our little Catholic school uniform belts and we'd lash the legs. We'd crawl under our beds and we'd lash the legs together so our mother couldn't pull them apart. And we slept arm in arm, in arm hugging each other every night growing up. And then suddenly my baby sister was taken and she was taken 
because of what I call malpractice. She was told that there was nothing wrong because the nurse that took her blood pressure didn't communicate with the doctor and say, look, you know, this is extreme hypertension. You better pay attention. And so I could have gotten really angry. Um, I went to a really sad place, of course. But instead, I decided to go to that love place because that's always been my my default. I had a really loving mother. I had a really loving grandmother. Um, and so my default's always been to go to love. And so I decided that in the future, nobody's sister, nobody's mother, nobody's daughter, nobody's niece was going to, that if I had anything to do with it, was going to be ignored when she said, I'm not feeling well in my body. I'm having blurry vision. I'm having headaches. My hands and feet and face are swelling. Doctor, can you help me? And the doctor absolutely ignoring her and saying no. You know, basically he said, I don't care and I don't have time. And so she went home and, you know, I'm frantically looking for a midwife for her that she can go to. But I was living in Hawaii and she was in Alabama. And, you know, she fell through the cracks. So I don't want anybody to fall through the cracks. But a mother dies. A mother dies every two minutes or less on this planet. So that's like 747 airplanes falling out of the sky. You know, if that happened every day, if every day there was a plane crash, how many people would fly around? Well, now nobody can fly, but very few people can fly because of the COVID. But, you know, why is it that women are so unimportant socially that it's society has really made it okay that that many women are dying every single day? And if modern medicine, as practiced by OBGYNs, if, if modern medicine was the answer, then the United States, where they spend more money on childbirth than any other country in the world, where they have the fewest numbers of mothers being looked after by midwives, the fewest numbers of babies being received into the world by midwives, and the most being in high-tech hospitals, the most technology with OBGYN doctors. My sister was in the care of an OBGYN specialist. And she had insurance. There was no reason that she was ignored. But if that, if that fact, all of that technology, all that modern medical method, mm -hmm. if that was the answer, I would bless it and say, okay, less mothers die. Less families grow up like my nephews without their mom. You know, my, my nieces and nephews' children don't have a grandmother. You know, this is a generational difficult thing to live with. If that was the answer, modern medicine, then I would bless it. But guess what? The United States since 1986 has had a growing maternal mortality rate. It's growing. You know, Amnesty International says that that is one of the most shameful statistics in the world, that women in the country where the most technology is being used, where it costs them the most to get the care that they really need, because everyone deserves care. And that, the, and that the modern medical methods and protocols have really locked out midwifery. You know, it, it's growing and it's changing and it's getting better, but in baby steps. But again, you know, that, that, that method of care is not working because women are dying in that, in that setting. Yeah. And 
I'm, I'm recalling a lot of these statistics that you're sharing that you shared in your TED talk as well. And I think it's really important for people to really, they need to like really visualize and understand just how big of a problem this is in a country that, like you said, spends more on child birth than any other mm -hmm. um, country in the world. And I want to shift into what you created. <laughs> and there's a lot to say about Bumi Say Hot in all the years that it's been in existence. So I would love to explore what you've created with Bumi Say Hot. There's a lot to say. So I'm going to kind of take it in two ways. So I've been to one of your clinics, the one in New Kuning, and it's beautiful. For those of you who have not been to Bali and you haven't been to Bumi Say Hot yet, it is in such a beautiful space adjacent to like a soccer field and it's very quiet. The streets are lined with frangipani trees and it's so peaceful when you walk in. It's almost like, where am I? Like <laughs> this could be a yoga studio. This could be just a beautiful space for children to learn. Like I can't quite put my finger on what it is because it doesn't really exist, you know, that sort of space. Um, everywhere you go. And so I would just love to hear from you. Um, yeah, what like from the perspective of a pregnant woman coming into Bumi Sehat for the first time, what can she expect mm. walking in? What is her experience? And as much color as you can bring <laughs> would be great. Well, before before the pandemic, uh, when a mother would arrive at Bumi Sehat, usually um, someone at reception would hug her. Because Again, all healing begins with a hug. You know, sometimes they're sick and sometimes they're in labor and sometimes they're there for a prenatal exam, but they're going to get a hug. And if they don't get a hug from reception, they'll sure get a lot of hugs when they get to the midwifery station. Um, the place for sick people is totally separate from where you have your checkups and give birth and have postpartum. Because who thought of mixing uh, sickness with childbirth? <laughs> it makes no sense at all. So, um, and there's also acupuncture. Ibu Ayu's there. She is a gifted doctor of acupuncture. Um, there, you know, so there, Dr. Dayu's there or Dr. Ayu or Dr. Adi, and they're allopathic physicians, and they're right next door to acupuncture. So they're always talking. They're always saying, well, this patient has a fertility issue, and she's been trying to get pregnant for eight years, and they haven't achieved pregnancy. So what do you think? And this is a doctor of medicine talking to a doctor of acupuncture. Well, they've already tried IVF and it didn't work. So then the doctor of acupuncture is saying, okay, let's see both the mother and the father. Let's talk about, teach them their signs of possible fertility and let's do acupuncture to get rid of blood stagnation. You'd be surprised how many people end up getting a baby <laughs> just from the relief of blood stagnation, you know? Um, and if someone comes in for acupuncture, but then they've got something going on where they actually really need more science, then that acupuncturist is speaking with our allopathic physician and our nurses to make sure that everyone gets optimal care. Being poor and having no money to care to pay for health care should not be a barrier. You know, being poor and having no money for education should not be a barrier. This is why Bumi Sehat is constantly, and I'm not going to change, I'll be begging for funding and for support, support meaning upliftment, uh, for the rest of my life, I'm sure. 
and I'm not shy to do it anymore. I used to be really shy and it used to like pain me. I used to say, I just want to be a billionaire so I don't have to ask anybody for money. But you know what? It's a privilege for people. It's an honor and opportunity. You know, on the back, on the other, like the east side of the of the clinic property, there's a big youth center, a youth education center. So young people that don't get an opportunity to learn how to use computers can get a leg up in life. They can take English classes. Um, you know, where we invite people to teach them Spanish or Italian. I mean, anybody coming that can give some time, some volunteer time to uplift the youth so that they can, they can, you know, have a better life. Again, it's the fishing pole. Don't give someone a fish, give them a fishing pole and show them how to fish. And so the youth center is a really happy, wonderful place. Of course, now it's really, we're not, the classes are online since COVID. Um, There's also yoga for the mothers, prenatal yoga, which used to be somewhere between 40 to 70 mothers or more every single week, twice a week. Now we're, they're, they're limiting the classes to 10. And so mothers sign up and we're hopefully we'll get more yoga teachers to help so that, um, you know, so that we can have the, the yoga classes every day instead of just twice a week. Uh, there's elderly yoga. And that's really fun. My mother's 88 years old and she's in the elderly yoga group. And so, we, you know, we have these beautiful things that are, are there's community yoga for this that started out staff, but the community started coming. Um, it's really something when the mothers are having their yoga class upstairs. And this is so great because this is a chance to meet other women who are going to have babies the same age as your baby. And then they hear the cry of a baby's first, first cry downstairs and they all start clapping and cheering. And, you know, they know that they're coming up next. So we, you know, Bumi Sehat, you, you talked about coming into the village of Niukuni and feeling like it was so quiet and clean and, it, we started over, oh, I think it must be 25 years ago, we started recycling plastic in our village through Bumi Sehat. Bumi is the earth mother. Sehat is healthy. Yayasan is not-for-profit foundation. So we're Healthy Mother Earth Foundation. And so we, you know, we did things like recycling. And the children at the elementary school for many years, and of course with COVID these things have been put on hold, the children would go and pick up rubbish every Saturday together. The elders would have clubs that they form themselves and get Bumi Sehat sponsoring them. They'd say, well, what we want from you is we want t-shirts and we're going to go pick up rubbish every Thursday. And we'd say, sure, we'll, we'll buy your t-shirts. And again, you can't really talk about Bumi Sehat and say Ibu Robin created it because there is an incredible team. There's 70 people that work in Bali. There's another... 19 people that work at Bumi Sehat in Aceh, where the tsunami happened. We were one of the earliest responders, and we're still there. Uh, Lombok has another 15 people, and Papua, Bumi Sehat Papua, um, has a beautiful, beautiful birth center um, that's, that's struggling right now because our senior midwife died of COVID. Four of our midwives recovered from COVID. So taking uh, Sambiroto, which is Andrographix paniculata herbs, which we've been distributing. Um, we've had uh, two of our founders also uh, recently died of COVID in Papua, but they're still working. They're still busy, you know, as the midwives recover, then they take their quarantine time and they come back stronger than ever. So we've really, um, and again, those, those, the four 
community health and childbirth centers that Bumi Sehat runs in Indonesia are dependent on our team in here in Bali to raise the money. We're the mothership. And there's two now in the Philippines, one in Palawan and one in Lete, where they had the big typhoon in 2013, where we had 100% homeless mothers. The first year we delivered, well, the mothers delivered, we received 777 babies in a tent. Yeah. Wow. And we've proven that the the most kind, loving protocols are applicable in the most high-risk, low-resource settings, giving birth in a tent. You know, you don't have to be cruel and efficient and all medicalized. You know, when you go into Bumi Sehat, it doesn't smell like a hospital. Why? Because people from Australia and Japan and all over the world bring us eucalyptus oil, and we add a little bit of that, and we mop the floors with something natural. You know, here we're using local essential oils now, and people like Utama Spice and Copernic are always helping us with those things so that we have the most natural, sustainable, local cleaning solutions and things so that we don't smell like a hospital. When the mother comes in, the minute she smells a hospital, you get scared. Someone's going to give me an injection. I mean, as children, we all have trauma from that. So we, we do everything we can to look after you know, the gardens are beautiful. One, we all love beautiful gardens. But two, it's really nice for the mothers in labor to walk. There's a beautiful, hilly, grassy space that's called the Hanuman Play Garden. And that's our playground. And it's on the, it's on the south side of the, of, and it's near the recovery room so that the mothers who have other children can look out the windows and see their children. And it's furthest from the, from, there's no traffic there. And also reception is also looking after the children to make sure that everyone feels comfortable and safe and supported. Wow, it's such an unusual picture you're painting, you know, to really see, right? I think the, the, the most resonating thing you said is why are pregnant moms treated like sick patients? <laughs> They're completely different. Um, and, you know, this, this sort of ties into the next thing I want to ask you, which you touched on. Um, and I remember in one of your talks, you really, you know, made the midwives the heroes. You said in 2004, following the earthquake that wiped out Aceh, which is a few islands away from Bali, for those of you who don't know where that is. And you said that midwives came to the rescue, delivering babies without electricity, running water, childbirth equipment or shelter, you know, because the show of life must go on. It's not like we're going to pause. Um, and so I would, yeah, just love to hear from you. What, what do you feel like most people don't know about midwives? You've touched on this already a little bit, but what is it that you wish more people knew about <laughs> midwives that they don't know because mm -hmm. it's not something that's talked about in mainstream culture or media? Whereas most children in this part of the world in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in India, and in, in throughout Asia, um, Bangladesh even, that most children come into the world greeted by the hands of the midwife. So um, midwives these days were highly skilled medical professionals. Um, for example, every three years I have to be recertified. So I have to prove that I have maintained my skills. So midwives go to school. In all over Indonesia, there are beautiful skills of midwifery. And before the COVID pandemic, we had every single week, usually three, four, five groups of midwives from midwifery schools all over the country 
would arrive sometimes by bus. They would save their money for sometimes years to be able to come. So if midwives going into their first year of school in a midwifery college, say in Kalimantan, they would start saving their pennies so that they could get a plane ride. And then the, the schools would look for grants so they could bring 100 midwives to us or 40 midwives or 80 midwives or 60. And they would have half-day seminars with our midwives. And they're so much fun because they would laugh, they would cry, they would ask questions, they'd see childbirth videos, they'd meet pregnant women and, and postpartum women. They would talk about their, their rate of mothers dying in their remote areas. And we would talk about solutions and we would talk about empowering these women, young women going into a profession that's really bloody hard. You know, you have to be willing to get up in the middle of the night and be there. You have, you know, you, you're going to work on all of your children's birthdays. I can't even count how many babies are named Will after my husband, because they would say, we heard it's your husband's birthday. We're going to name our baby Willie. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, why and Willie's a fine name for a little girl. Whatever you want. But uh, <laughs> so, so midwives are highly skilled medical professionals. But remember, if they're not mothers, when they become midwives, most of them do become mothers. So they come from the heart of the mother. And I, I mean, I, I personally love, there's a saint in India called Amachi. And I love Ama because she hugs people. That's her medicine. She hugs people and she empowers people just through love mm -hmm. and consciousness. And she has said that the world will really have a, an evolution revolution when everyone, no matter what their gender is, if they're a man or a woman or, or any other gender, that they, if they actually come from the heart of the mother, if they live their daily lives and all their relationships are from the heart of a mother, then we're going to see peace on earth. We're going to see environmental sovereignty, food sovereignty. We're going to see that businesses are conscious and uplifting. And, that, and we're going to see less suffering on earth. So midwives instinctively are kind and loving and and in my opinion, what could be better? I mean, personally, I really wouldn't want to open my legs and give birth on a, you know, you go to the hospitals and you're on a table because the OBGYN needs to be able to have good posture and look after his health, right? The mother giving birth is not considered. She has to climb up and get on a high table and put her feet in stirrups. What mammal does that? If you put dogs up on tables and put their feet in stirrups and and made them give birth like that, the SPCA would have you in jail. You know, no other species does that. So we have to change even the furniture of, you know, it, when we say, hey, you don't see women giving birth in stirrups up on high tables. No, you know, they give birth in any position they want. They can squat, they can lay on their side, they can put one foot up, they can, you know, if they, and many, many of them want to be in the arms of their partner in a supported squat. So this is the kind of thing that's a human right. This is part of what, what gentle childbirth is. Again, letting the mother know. Because the mothers will ask. They'll say, what position do I have to give birth in? We'll say, well, any position you want. You're the boss. It's like unlearning this conditioning. Mm. It's very, very deep conditioning. And no one, you know, I've seen clinics all over the world. No one should have to give birth where people, strangers can walk by and look right in the window because no one's thought of putting curtains up and see her 
on a high table with her legs open, you know, trying to give birth. I mean, I wouldn't want some strange man putting his hand inside my vagina, you know, and they do that. You know, women are put on tables, they put their feet in stirrups and some stranger goes and puts a glove on and puts his hand in your vagina without even asking permission or even knowing your name. That's rape. Is that not rape? And we need to ask ourselves that. You know, when I was 16 and I was excited about my boyfriend and we were going to have sex and I didn't want to have a baby yet. And so I went to Planned Parenthood and I wanted to get some kind of birth control, family planning. And so I went there and the doctor comes in. I waited my number. People were really nice to me out in the lobby. And then I waited my number and I came in to the room and the doctor throws a, a plastic gown at me and he says take off all your clothes lay down and put your feet in stirrups I'll be back in five minutes and my mother did not raise me to take off all my clothes and lay back and put my feet in stirrups and wait for a man to come that I didn't even know you know and I'm thinking what is he gonna do you know I, I mean certainly I don't want this doctor who doesn't even know my name to put his hand inside my vagina you know like, he doesn't belong in there. This is my sovereign body. And even though I was 16 years old, when he came back, I was fully dressed. I was sitting in a chair in that room. And he said, why aren't, why aren't you up there? And why do you have your clothes on? And I said, well, I'm, I have a lot of questions. Like, why do I need to take off my clothes? I'm here to get on the pill. You know, I'm not here to have a vaginal exam. I don't need one. I'm not sick. And I, there's no reason for me to have this, this procedure done to me. And he already had a glove on and he was yelling at me saying, take off your pants. And I said, no. And then he went ballistic yelling at me and a woman came in the door. And I just remember her as being this gigantic goddess. She must have been all 350 pounds of her. She was a tall, big doctor. And she picked up that guy and she threw him down the hall. And she said some pretty choice words to him. And by then I was in fetal position on the floor in the corner hiding from him. And she came and she put her big arms and her big boobs around me and she hugged me and she rocked me like a baby. And she said, you did the right thing. You claimed your sovereignty over your body. And she said, I'm going to write him up and make sure he doesn't do that to anybody ever again. But most women I talked to the first time they went to an OBGYN, they laid down and they opened their legs to a virtual stranger and let someone do a vaginal exam on them without questioning why. So this needs to be talked about with all of our daughters and our granddaughters because we can't, we can't be training women to take abuse. We can't be training girls to submit themselves to that. So nobody's giving birth at Bumi Sehat on a high table. It's just not going to happen. The midwives wouldn't allow it, you know. There's 14 amazing Indonesian women down there who run that show. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. I'd love to really witness that in action. Thank you. Um, so before this podcast, you and I had a conversation, and we touched on this a little bit. And I think you you shared just an observation that since COVID, right, now mm -hmm. we're living in COVID times and what was already a broken system is probably even more broken given the state of the world. And you had mentioned that there were just more 
women getting pregnant. And um, I just want to, I read an article, let's just see if any of this really resonates, um, around how many more women have gotten pregnant unintended Mm -hmm. during this time. And this is from the Jakarta Post in June. Um, And there was a quote, experts say that an increase in the number of unplanned pregnancies during the pandemic Mm -hmm. not only increased health risks for mothers and infants, but also presented challenges for a new generation of households that may be affected by the economic costs of the pandemic. And it's really important for Indonesia's National Population and Family Planning Board as the sector's lead and midwives at health facilities to encourage people to discuss family planning wisely um, and use contraception. Mm-hmm. Um, the agency has said that by early next year, Indonesia, which is the fourth, uh, the world's fourth most populous country, could see 420,000 more births than would otherwise be expected. And so, yeah, I guess I know, you know, family planning isn't like one of the main things that you that you do, but it's definitely mm-hmm. adjacent and related. So I guess what do you see right now as far as, you know, are, are the women coming to you mostly having wanted pregnancies, intended pregnancies, or unintended pregnancies? And yeah, what are your thoughts on this? It's, it's a really mixed bag, and family planning is available at Bumi Sehat. I mean, we're a full reproductive health center. I spent 21 years with my friend, Abuela Maria Elena, who's from Mexico, writing a book called The Natural Family Planning Handbook, A Life a style of nonviolence. It's really beautiful. And it's in Bahasa, Indonesia. And um, women can get it there. And not only that, they can be taught because it's one of those things. It's like breastfeeding. It's uh, it's an art. It's not only, you know, just all the babies are going to breastfeed. There's also the art of generation after generation of women helping the mother get comfortable and position the baby correctly on the breast so that she doesn't end up with sore, cracked nipples and difficulties breastfeeding and the baby gets well nourished. Also, if mother is in an uncomfortable position, baby will be shy to breastfeed. And family planning is like that natural planning in that you kind of need someone to help you and your partner to learn it together. And um, so that's available at Bumi Sehat and um, also other, you know, artificial methods of family planning or birth control are available. I'm, I'm always looking for the healthiest method that supports the family. Um, You know, one of the things we tell couples when they learn natural family planning, we say, well, you know, this is going to make or break your relationship because invariably the unmarried couple that's not committed after two or three months, the, the partner is saying, well, you know, why don't you just take the pill? And the woman's saying, wait a minute, this is good for me. This helps me to understand my signs of possible fertility and yeah, during my fertile time, we abstain, but then we have a honeymoon afterwards. And if that doesn't work for you, maybe this relationship doesn't work for us. You know, do you care about me? Do you care about me enough to protect my fertility so that my body can stay healthy for my future fertility? Um, you know, so, and couples that are committed end up with richer, more enlivened relationships. I mean, they, they'll say over and over again, wow. It's amazing how, you know, charting our signs of possible fertility has really woken us up to each other and we're more sensitive and loving to each other. And then there's those couples that have, for example, we had a couple come to us. This was quite a few years ago. 
And we were in the old Bumise hut. We hadn't moved to the new, big, beautiful place. We were down the street in the little tiny place. And they came to us, and they had been seven years trying to conceive a child. And the young man was in tears. His name was Wayan. And uh, Kadek, his wife, um, was trying to calm him down. And he says, my mother says that if we don't get pregnant really soon, she's going to go get me a second wife because she's blaming Kadek. My mother and my father are saying that she can't give me a warisan, a, a next generation. She can't give us our, you know, our descendants. And so he's, and he says, you know, I, I just really feel devoted to my wife. And I, I'm a, I go and work on a duck farm. I can't afford a second wife. I really can't afford this. And I said, well, wait a minute. You work on a duck farm. And he goes, yeah. And I go, okay, let's, let's talk about fertility. And I talked about how morning, noon, and night, men have sperm. They can you know, keep getting people pregnant, but women have cycles. And so you're going to have your time when you're bleeding, and then you're going to have your time when you don't have any moisture, you don't have any blood, and then you'll start feeling a little moisture, a little moisture, and pretty soon you'll have slippery mucus. And it's during that time when you are moist that the woman is ovulating. Without an egg, you can't, you can't get a baby. And then after you finish ovulating, and then just like the Mother Earth, when you plant vegetable seeds, nothing's going to grow if it never rains. You need moisture. Women need moisture to prove they're fertile. The Mother Earth needs moisture to support her fertility. So then even two or three days after the rain, if you dig down a little bit, you'll see it's still moist. So we chart our signs of, of possible fertility. We abstain during our fertile time and we wait for three days until we're no longer fertile and we're sure we're no longer fertile. And then there's 11 to 16 days when we can make love morning, noon, and night and we can avoid pregnancy. And they were like listening and going, oh my gosh, and asking questions. And then suddenly they both start laughing. And they both, it the, the light went on in their minds and they went, Every single time he comes home from the duck farm, because they lived in, Singa, in, in Singakarta, but he worked in Singaraja on the other side of the island, like almost a three-hour three motorcycle ride away from home. And then every, every month he would get two or three days off to go home and hopefully get his wife pregnant. And she goes, you've never come home when I have like my fertile, juicy stuff. <laughs> and he goes... It's true. And, you know, when your woman is ovulating, you, you like her smell, you're attracted to her. You know, the guy comes up in from the farm and he's all dirty and sweaty and she's ovulating, so he looks pretty good to her, you know? I always say, if it's your idea, you're fertile. I say that to the women. Anyway, so they left with some prenatal vitamins I gave them and some, you know, nutritional advice and this they had a chart. So they were charting her signs of fossil. She was charting her signs of possible fertility. He went back to work in Singaraja on the duck farm. And then about a week and a half later, his brother, his younger brother, rides a motorcycle down to the, over to the duck farm, over the mountain, and says, you need to come home right now. Your wife is wet. <laughs> <laughs> well, about a month and a half later, I started noticing that there were all these duck eggs in my kitchen. He kept, every time he came home, he was bringing home duck eggs. And then they came and started having prenatal care and they had a baby boy. So immediately, there was nothing wrong with them. They were healthy. They just didn't know there's possible signs of fertility. And he was not, he was not jumping in there on the right window. 
So th- those are the kind of success stories that such a simple thing, such a simple thing. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And everyone's unique. They just need the tools and the information and knowledge to, you know, realize, ah, I was designed to do this natural thing. I just need mm-hmm. the, the guidance to do it. Right. 15% of people, only 15% of people who've been diagnosed with infertility are actually infertile. And for the ones that actually have fertility issues, better living through science. Let's support them. For example, my daughter's a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine in California. And um, the OBGYNs are working with her now. So they do IVF fertilization. For There's a lot of people with fertility issues right now in, in the United States, especially in the areas where the climate change has caused all the fires. We're having more and more reduced fertility as a result of that because of the poisons in the environment that have leached into the groundwater. So the doctors of the OBGYNs won't do the IVF fertilization until they have acupuncture in the morning, fertilization in the afternoon, acupuncture the next morning. And since they started that protocol, they've had 100% good takes. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So this is how we can hold hands with science, you know. Bumi Sehat, we always say that it's the Trihirta Karana, the philosophy of Bali, of Bali Hindu Dharma. And that is, you know, we always have to have respect for nature. You know, respect for nature is number one. But you also have to have science because you never know when you're going to need it. So you have science and respect for nature. If you stand on one foot of science, science like the United States of America is trying to stand on medically, then you will fall down. Even in yoga, advanced yoginis cannot stand on one leg indefinitely. So here we are in the United States, so much science in childbirth and reproductive health, and they're hopping around on one foot and they're falling down and women are dying. So then if you have respect for nature, you have two feet, you can walk. Mm-hmm. You know, one foot, another foot. But that's not enough. The most important is the third foot, so you never ever fall down. And that's adat or spirit. So respect for nature good science, sound science, and spirit. And those three together, they're going to carry you. And that's how all the, the staff at Bumi Sehat feels. Mm-hmm. You know, It's why the cleaning staff, for their own health and for the health of our, of our people or, that we look after, they prefer to use natural products. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want the junk. Mm-hmm. You know? So everyone on every level of Bumi Sehat is trying to serve humanity and protect the environment and do the healthiest thing. By respecting nature yeah it's such a beautiful dance um, and to recognize that there is no harmony if one aspect of the trihita karana is not present and fully applied and practiced and so i kind of want to shift um, into you are a midwife you started Bumi Sehat and and founded this organization that has uplifted and empowered all these women um, and you also are a fundraiser. And <laughs> that is a whole world in and of itself. And so I just want to know, you know, since COVID, which has presented many challenges, if you could just speak to what has been the biggest challenge for you as a founder and fundraiser of five clinics? Six now. Six, six now clinics. Six clinics. And just maybe, yeah, shed some light on help us peek under the hood of the car as to what those challenges really are so that people can, yeah, look into that a little bit and and support. 
Well, when people go to Bumise Hat now, they'll notice that all the medical people are wearing PPEs, which is personal protective equipment, which means, you know, they have these little hazmat suits and we have masks and we have um, either goggles or plastic shields. We have um, coarse gloves and then head headwear and foot coverings. And this protects our patients. Um, it makes it so the mothers feel safe. Um, usually the partner of the mother, whether she has her husband there or she's chosen someone else in her family, um, will wear a mask. The mothers do not have to wear masks in labor. That's just cruel. And um, But they're in a protective space so that they're not getting germs from other people, hopefully. You know, this is really hard because sometimes the mothers say, I can't see you smiling. And then the midwives will say, I've heard it so many times where the midwives say, I'm smiling with my eyes at you. You know, we're not hugging you the way we used to. Like some of the mothers will say, when I had my first baby, I just got hugged all through labor. So we get her partner to really hug her more. And we try to really, you know, give affection as much as we can. And we do, you know, there is hugging, but hugging with PPEs on is a little less, you know, it's a little less intimate. But, um, you know, in our midways, we even talk about things like, like part of the training in natural childbirth is to say, you know, don't wear any perfumes because perfumes can be so offensive to a mother in labor or a pregnant woman. If you have a natural essential oil and you want to try that, if you want to wear it or you want to put it, you know, in the room as we have essential oil um, diffusers there, you know, always let the mother smell it first and say, I was going to put this oil on during your labor. Do you like the smell? And, and again, empowering the mother to find her own inner knowing. We're, we're doing our best in a hard situation. It's scary. You know, people do come in for rapid tests. The mothers are required to get a rapid test, and it's Indonesian regulation. Um, they have to get a rapid test when they arrive in labor. And for some of the women, it's really scary. I've had women say to the midwives and to me, they say, I'd rather get an HIV positive test than a rap than a than a COVID test positive. And I'm like, what? That's and we do, by the way, we do have confidential HIV testing at Bumi Sehat with an HIV counselor who's a brilliant, wonderful, amazing, loving person who will hold your hand if you turn up positive. So anyone who thinks they're positive, please come in and get our lab to work with you. Anyway, and we do have a we we do have blood and urinalysis and all kinds of testing and all of that, including, like I said, rapid tests. Abumi Sehat dad called me today and he's been sick with a really acute flu for five days. So he's going to come in for testing. Um, so our midwives know that the mothers, their blood pressure can go crazy while they wait for the 15 minutes for the rapid test, the COVID rapid test to come back. So there's always someone holding, you know, we take her into a little isolation room, but it's nice and sunny and open and someone holds her hand and helps to joke around with her and rubs her back because, you know, they come in during labor. Sometimes it's pretty advanced labor and sometimes it's early labor, but we just want to let her feel confident that, and touch wood, so far, every mother who's come in in labor has not tested positive. We're so blessed in Bali to have such low numbers. It's not so easy in other countries, as you know. So those challenges, plus, for example, are one of our biggest donors from Japan, um, uh, he lost his life to COVID at the end of May. He's also a grandfather. Uh, his grandchildren have been born at Bumisehat with the Bumisehat midwives. So, and in February, he was here um, with his wife, um, Kazumi, who's one of my dearest friends in the world. And um, yeah, he's gone. And so when you lose someone like that, who's 
who's given so much over so many years to Bumi Sehat. And, you know, our donations last month were far below what they need to be to maintain all of the community health clinics, educational programs, and and um, reproductive health programs that we do, and environmental programs, things like that. So all of those things cost a lot of money. Um, but, you know, Global Giving partnered with us recently. Uh, our team in the office has been amazing working with Global Giving and, you know, just decided we've got to, like, really work a little harder to help fundraise, which is really cool to see the, the rest of the staff, because part of it is it's, it's pretty burdensome for me. And I also think it's a privilege and an exciting thing that I do. So Global Giving, we did a fundraising campaign last month that turned out really good for us. On December 1st, anybody who wants to give to Bumi Sehat, uh, December 1st, Global Giving amplifies. So um, the, the partner organizations will all be raising funds because December is on the first it's giving Tuesday every year on giving Tuesday and um, people have made big endowments to global, to global giving so that they can amplify any of your donations. You can make donations anytime and that's totally appreciated. And thank you. I'm on my knees in gratitude, but um, give to us on December 1st, November 24th is my birthday. And traditionally every year it's our biggest day of collecting donations. We just get the most and we send out a newsletter and everybody's like, it's Ibu Robin's birthday. What does Ibu Robin want for her birthday? I want donations for Bumi Sehat. I don't personally need anything. I definitely don't need anything. But what I do need is for Bumi Sehat to thrive, even during these challenging times. And it has been thriving. It's pretty exciting. So anyway, um, we're going to hold my birthday off. We're going to stop it and not do it on December 24th. We're going to celebrate my birthday on December, on not on November 24th. We're going to celebrate on December 1st this year. Mm. So hopefully... Um, we'll have a good, we're hoping that boosts us up and gets us through these hard times. Mm -hmm. The thing about Bumi Sehat is it's like, um, we have a lucky horseshoe. Some, for some reason, we're so blessed. And I feel like that is the attitude of all 70 people that work here in Bali and all the other clinics in the Philippines and here in Indonesia. I feel like the attitude of gratitude has carried us through. It's been beautiful. And we've been so blessed to keep our staff working. Yeah. So much unemployment in Bali right now. And people don't even count the farmers who can't sell their oranges. There's no hotels. There's no, there's hardly any restaurants, you know, uh, all of those people are suffering. You know, we have right now a program where about 200 families a week are getting, um, some bako, which is basic foods. They get rice, sweet potatoes, cooking oil, eggs, and vegetables from us in the farming communities. They don't need vegetables, but um, in the more um, more urban communities or suburban communities, they need vegetables. So we've been making sure. There's also a feeding program working with a couple different organizations. One's a hotel here, um, here in Bali, where every single day of the week, elders in the surrounding villages um, are getting a lunch delivered to them, a nice organic lunch. And then that comes in a recyclable plastic. We switch it out a plastic mm -hmm. container it's with like I don't like plastic but I love these containers because they have nice lids and at the same time the nurses go for the food delivery and they do blood pressure checks and basic health checks on our elders so we know how they're doing when um, mother or father or grandfather great-grandfather um, grandmother great-grandmother when they see that there's not enough food in the kitchen 
they make sure that the children eat first and they make sure that the mothers and the fathers eat first. And the elders here in Bali are the most vulnerable to COVID. As we know, all over the world, they're the most vulnerable. The elders here are not in old folks' homes. They're not stashed away somewhere. They're actually a vital, very necessary part of the family. You know, It's because we live, I have four generations in my home, because we live in multi-generational compounds here, then the younger people can go and get an education because their children are looked after by the, by the grandparents and the great-grandparents. They are vital. They're the ones that are out there, you know, in the garden, making sure that there's a few vegetables being grown. They're, the, they're such a vital, important part of our society here. And it's one of the things I have really been worried about is COVID would really devastate families by taking our elders away. We need them. Mm. Oh, true community leader, Robin. Because, <laughs> yes, it's about empowering the women during this major birth and transition, but it's also about just life as we know it and really thinking about life as an ecosystem and all of these moving parts being critical mm -hmm. and looking at, yeah, the eldest in these villages that play such an important role that is often actually many times overlooked. Mm -hmm. So um, to come to a close, um, you shared so much today. Um, but can you, for our audience, and you can make this towards, you know, any, any person that you have in your mind, what would be a message or a question that you would like to leave our audience with beyond this conversation? <sighs> mm. I would say that the most important message that I have from my heart to most every single person I've ever met, no matter of their age or their condition in life, is... I believe in you and I love you. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That has to be enough. What <laughs> <laughs> more is there to say? Um, so I want to thank you for just the work that you do, the person that you are, and You're just, welcome. you know, during this very challenging is understated but during these times these existential times that you're still on the front lines you know and bringing your team not just here in bali but all over the world mm. who support you um yeah i'm really blessed i don't do this alone and i have a family that really supports me and they're incredible yeah really so, incredible <laughs> to all of your yeah community and family you know i I want to just tell you guys, you know, we're going to include um, Robin's um, fundraising link. Um, oh, thank you. Let's the put the Global Giving link. So yes. December 1st, everybody. December 1st is the day. It's Robin's birth month because, <laughs> you know, birthday can be birth month. And so December 1st is the big day that we're going to really rally around to um, support and give what we can. Um, and I'll also include Robin's um, website and Bumi Say Hot's website so that if you'd like to learn more, explore, just understand how you can get involved, all of those options will be made available to you. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Robin. Thank you. Really, really appreciate you. And yeah, we will see you next week. Thanks, guys. The Alt Normal. Thanks for tuning in to The Alt Normal. I'm your host, Tiffany Wen, and this show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of dig, seed, grow.